Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and it couldn't be better timing. The coronavirus pandemic has upended just about every part of life right now. And with that comes a host of legal questions. Does your employer have an obligation to protect you from catching COVID-19 in the workplace? Does the government have the right to make you stay home? Is there a difference to the answer to that question if you're in Missouri or Illinois? And does Facebook have the right to censor anyone who objects. There is so much to discuss, and our legal roundtable is here today to discuss it. That includes Bill Freivogel. He's a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, as well as an attorney. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi. And we're also joined today by Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University, as well as an attorney. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Good to be back. And last but certainly not least is Catherine Hannaway. She's a partner at Hush Blackwell, as well as the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District here in St. Louis and the former speaker of the Missouri House. And Catherine has recently been named the chair of Hush Blackwell. That firm has more than 700 attorneys in cities across the country. So, Catherine, congratulations on that and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm really happy to be with you. Yeah, and we're just, it's so nice to see a woman um, running one of these big law firms, especially one here in St. Louis. I think that's just such exciting news. But on the other hand, the timing is probably pretty tough. Everybody's confronting so many issues right now. Is this kind of a mixed blessing? Well, it is a little bit of a mixed blessing, but I'm very fortunate that there is a full year for me to transition into that role. And Greg Smith, who is currently our chairman, will continue until April 1st of next year, I have a lot to learn from him. He's been a great leader from the fir- for the firm, taking it really from a St. Louis mid-sized firm to now one of the AMLAW 100 firms and, and really national in its stance. So I I'm lucky to be able to learn from him. Well, that's great. You've got that transition, and I think it's going to be great to see what you do with the firm. So congratulations again on that, and, and we're so glad to have you with us today. Thank you. Well, we do have so much news to cover today. I want to dive right in. And where better to start than Missouri suing China? We are the first state in the nation to file a lawsuit like this. Uh, Bill Freivogel, what is the state attorney general alleging in this lawsuit here? Well, uh, Attorney General Schmidt uh, Schmidt is alleging that uh, China uh, was negligent and hid the uh, the coronavirus's origins uh, from the rest of the world and from the United States, and that uh, as as a result of their of those actions or failures to act, uh, that the there were damages in the United States and in Missouri uh, that that resulted uh, with the virus uh, spreading, all the costs that are involved, and of course also the economic. Uh, damages. Of course, a big issue here is sovereign immunity, which I think we probably want to talk about, yeah. which is uh, generally, generally you can't sue a, sue a sovereign. And, and by a sovereign, you mean you can't just go around suing a foreign country, right? You, you can't just go around suing a foreign country. That's right. And, and uh, one way in which uh, uh, the attorney general tries to get around that is by saying, well, uh, a lot of these uh, actions or by the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese Communist Party is not a sovereign. Hmm. Um, that that may run into some. I, I think I think this whole lawsuit has got sort of an uphill climb uh, 
uh, that that the Supreme the, our U.S. Supreme Court has said that uh, when you talk about the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, you got to be looking at the real party in interest. And so I think it's going to be hard to say that the the Communist Party wouldn't fit into that. But that's an argument that he makes. And also, there's something called a commercial activity exception. To, to the Foreign uh, Sovereign Immunity Act, uh, but that applies in general to when a sovereign, say China, had commercial activity in, say, Missouri. Hmm. Uh, but the actions that uh, are are uh, cited by the Attorney General are actions that occurred in China. So it would seem hard to use that uh, exception. Catherine, do you share Bill Freivogel's skepticism about this lawsuit? Well, I do think it's an uphill climb. I think that's a fair characterization. What I like about it is that we have an attorney general who is thinking outside the box about ways to protect Missourians. It really has compromised our ability to uh, react to this crisis, that the fact that China has hoarded PPE, and um, this isn't really China's fault, but that the United States has greatly reduced over time its ability to manufacture um, some of the key uh, PPE we need, pharmaceuticals, even some of the components of of testing. But um, General Schmidt is, you know, forward-thinking about um, how we might get some recovery. I I think the other aspect that um, Bill did not highlight is um, if we can sue China, then maybe China and other countries can sue the United States. And if United States courts start applying the exceptions to um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, will other international courts respond accordingly? So I do think there's some risk for us as a country, and I think the the courts will be very uh, careful in their consideration of whether the Communist Party really uh, falls uh, outside of the Sovereign Immunity Act and whether the commercial exception applies. The other thing I would mention is I think they have real personal jurisdiction um, issues in, in terms of bringing the Communist Party into a, a U.S. court. You think that's going to be um, not easy to achieve legally? I do not think it will be easy to achieve. Okay, so this uphill battle, um, Catherine kind of admires the, the thinking here. Mark, do you do you share that feeling? Um, I, I have to disagree with Catherine. Um, I, I, this case looks like a dog loser to me. Um, there's you've got the jurisdictional issues. If you can get past those, which I think would be very difficult, um, then um, you have to be able to win on the merits, which I think would be really tough. And then third, if you win on the merits, you have to be able to collect, which I think would be very difficult. As Bill identified, you have this sovereign immunity. There's They included the Chinese Communist Party as a, a party, but they didn't allege they had done anything. They also included the Wuhan Institute of Virology Vi- Vi- mm. and also some other uh, Chinese government entities. But the, these, there's two exceptions to this this immunity, and and in both cases you have to be doing action in the United States. They weren't doing action. I also think there's potential harm to Missouri. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time, and this is not a legal issue; it's more of a, a political issue. But we've been spending a lot of time trying to 
um, you know, uh, do trade with China. Um, I remember it was a few years ago when we were going to try and have the hub at the airport for all the Chinese goods. This is not going to make the Chinese government inclined to want to do business with Missouri, I think. And mm -hmm. so um, I think there's the real risk. And, and this is what you tell your business clients, too. You know, yeah, we can sue them. But, you know, one, can we win? And two, are there are there extra costs? So this seems to me like kind of a publicity stunt. Bill, uh, uh, do, do you share that concern? Yeah, I think those c concerns are, are well stated. Uh, I, you know, there are a couple of actions in in the Senate uh, or in the Congress uh, to try to get around the sovereign immunity uh, question. Josh Hawley has uh, proposed a bill that would allow the U.S. Uh, to allow claims against uh, uh, against China in this case. Also, there's uh, Marsha Blackburn and Martha McSally have introduced something called the Stop China-Oriented Viral Infectious Diseases Act of 2020 that particularly aims at, uh, you know, the, the, the theory that that Wuhan uh, Institute was the source of, uh, of the uh, outbreak. Uh, so those, you know, the, so the, the Senate can try to pass, the Congress can try to pass bills that allow this kind of uh, uh, circumvention of the, so of the foreign uh, sovereign immunity. But uh, it, it, that's probably also a little bit of a steep climb. I want to go to the phone lines. We've got Lori calling from University City. And, and before we take that call, I want to encourage you, if you have a question or comment for our panel specifically about legal matters, <clears throat> excuse me, related to the coronavirus, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air. You can also email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Lori, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Uh, I want to say that I kind of feel like the panelists are missing the point here. We're in a position in the state where we're going to have to be cutting essential services. We are having such budget problems. And someone has decided that it's a good idea to flush money down the toilet for this, to carry out this ridiculous showboat lawsuit that has no chance of anything with my tax dollars. This this is obscene. I want to know how much this is costing us in terms of the time that that Missouri employees are having to spend on this enterprise. Lori, that's a great question. I can hear in your voice you're you're insulted by the fact that this is something they're they're choosing to work on here. Catherine, you were in state politics for a while. Do you think that there's a lot of government resources going in to try to pursue this thing at this point? Well, so it's very early stage. All that's happened is a lawsuit has been filed, and um, so it's not a significant uh, amount of state resources dedicated to it. Nor is it the first time that an attorney general uh, has filed a, a lawsuit in large measure to make a statement or to drive a political point. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, look, to the point that we are cutting essential services, if the reason that we are having to cut essential services um, is attributable in any way to the actions of the Communist Party in China, and there is some chance that we could recover, even if it's a long shot. It's certainly worth a few hours of a 
full-time assistant attorney general who's were already employed by the state. It's no additional cost. And um, it, it, it is a usual function of state's attorneys general around the country to advocate for positions that sometimes do not result in judgments. Hmm. Um, but they still, you know, I, I can think of literally hundreds of times that Attorney General Nixon or Attorney General Coster filed lawsuits. There were big press conferences, and the lawsuits were either later dismissed or, or did not result in a judgment on behalf of the state of Missouri. But it still put people on notice that the attorney general was going to advocate for the interests of the state of Missouri. Well, I am I am really shocked. I'm shocked. At, at Catherine yes. Yes. saying that that the, an attorney general would file a lawsuit that had a political to make a political point. Of course, I'm being I'm kidding. Uh, these happen all the time, as she said, you know, dozens of times in the history of the state of Missouri and and around the country. Um, and so that's that's not surprising. I mean, I I think it's to to, if I, to, to depart from uh, legal criticism and just to a. Uh, political criticism. Uh, I think that the Republican strategy of trying to blame China uh, at a time when you know what we really need to be doing is having an effective U.S. response is, uh, I, I think, in the long run, is really probably not going to be successful. I mean, maybe it will be, but I think it it's just sort of like trying to say, "Oh, look over there." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can see that point. Um, I can see our callers' point. Um, I don't know. There's I guess there's a lot of different perspectives on this one. It's going to be interesting to see how it sorts out. Uh, we're talking to our legal roundtable today, and that was just Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We're also joined by Catherine Hannaway, uh, who's a partner at Hush Blackwell, and Mark Smith of Washington University. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a lawsuit against the Smithfield Meat Processing plant in Milan, Missouri. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our legal roundtable. That's Mark Smith of Washington University, Catherine Hannaway of Hush Blackwell, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Now, there's a host of lawsuits that have been filed related to the coronavirus, and most of them are not international in scope like the last one we talked about. One of them involves the Smithfield Meat Processing Plant. That's in Milan, Missouri. The lawsuit was filed by the Rural Community Workers Alliance, and it accuses Smithfield of failing to protect its workforce from the coronavirus pandemic. They allege that workers had to stand shoulder to shoulder, weren't given protective equipment, and didn't have time to take breaks to wash their hands. They asked the court to grant an emergency injunction that would require Smithfield to take a variety of measures to protect those employees, and that is apparently set for Thursday. Mark Smith, do you think they have a good likelihood of succeeding here? Yeah, it's it depends on um, kind of the facts that they're alleging. You you mentioned some. I think another one that they uh, alleged was that the employer was offering a five hundred dollar bonus for not missing work, and and said that was encouraging. Um, people to uh, come to work even when they were sick. Mm. Um, you think that could be a legal problem CD for them, side, that, that bonus? 
Yeah, and the CDC guidelines just came out, um, I think, as a result of the closing down the Sioux Falls plant. So I haven't looked at the new CDC guidelines. Uh, I suspect I've looked at other ones they've done, and they're usually pretty vague. And so uh, I suspect what will happen is uh, Smithfield will come in and say, we are doing these things, we are in compliance, and I doubt they're going to... Uh, I doubt they'll shut down the plant. Now, they may have to make some uh, commitments about what they're going to be doing in terms of worker safety. Hmm. Now, President Trump apparently is declaring these meat plants critical infrastructure. Does that end up making a big difference legally to what they can do going forward? Uh, Bill Freivogel? Well, it it means that they need to stay. The the, uh, the, uh, meat processing plants must stay open. Hmm. Um, and uh, un- unfortunately, uh, the, the federal government is continuing to just say that OSHA's uh, r- regulations for assuring safety in these meat packing plants are only going to be recommendations. Uh, the judge uh, handling the case uh, in at the Smithfield plant in Missouri has said that uh, until tomorrow's he- until tomorrow's hearing, that Smithfield has got to uh, abide has to has to abide by those OSHA recommendations. Um, but I, I I find it somewhat perplexing that that uh, those those are just recommendations uh, rather than requirements, given the fact that meatpacking plants have plants have turned out to be a place where COVID has spread. Mm-hmm. There's been at least 20 workers at plants like these around the country who've died. Um, and yet at the same time, President Trump seems to be urging so strongly that these are places that need to stay open. Catherine Hannaway, are they somewhat between a rock and a hard place here? Well, they are between a rock and a hard place. And I think this is just the very first, even though there have been a number of lawsuits filed, we are just seeing the very first trickle of what is certain to be a tidal wave of lawsuits coming out of uh, people returning to work um, and COVID-related claims. I mean, if you look at uh, the guidance that's being promulgated uh, for returning to work, there are all kinds of things that employers have never done before uh, that they may start doing. And it's sort of a double-edged sword if they don't do it, do we see claims like we've seen in the Smithfield plant because um, they're not providing enough protective equipment, enough social distancing, or if they take on those responsibilities? Uh, at, for example, like Schnucks has plexiglass and masks, and then it's encouraging their shoppers to use masks, and they're disinfecting. Are, is Schnucks taking on liability because they are – providing that additional protective equipment. Um, And as we go further down the line and we have many more people returning to work, uh, some employers may be choosing to take temperatures. Uh, Contact tracing is about to become uh, a new term we're all all too familiar with. And how are we going to do contact tracing? Is it only going to be through departments of public health? Is it going to be the apps that Google and Apple have offered? Will it be something more like South Korea's doing? And who's going to do it? Who's going to have responsibility for it? Uh, Unfortunately, I think 
Another way that COVID-19 is going to really hurt our economy is the bonanza it will be for the trial bar. Catherine, you mentioned um, the plexiglass that Schnooks put up um, in an attempt to protect people checking us out from all the rest of us breathing germs all over them. You seem to suggest they might have liability just by the very fact of trying to take this measure. For, For those of us who aren't lawyers, how could doing something nice like that for your workers potentially get you in trouble? Well, so um, it, that's probably not the best example, but let's let's take contact tracing. So, mm-hmm. if if your employer has decided that it is going to um, use contact tracing to determine everybody that an affected person has come into contact with, what if there are gaps in that, mm-hmm. and then? There may be claims for negligence or the same thing, you know, going back to the plexiglass example, what if the plexiglass um, doesn't really protect workers and gives them some false sense mm-hmm. uh, of safety? So uh, I never underestimate the trial bar's uh, ingenuity in finding a, a source for their suits. Mark, do you think we're going to see trial lawyers circling? And I guess the corollary to that, is that a bad thing? Yeah, well, I do think we're going to see lawsuits. And actually, in this Smithfield case, part of their allegation was that Smithfield put in plexiglass to try and separate some of the workers, but it didn't account for differences in height. So they said, well, you knew you had to do something, you did it, but you didn't do it in in a way that really works. So Mm -hmm. You 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 know you failed to uh, meet your obligation here. So I think Catherine's exactly right that that there'll be lawsuits. I mean, you you know people who are hurt, you want to be able to let them recover. But at the same time, um, I, I tend to agree with her. I think we're just going to see a lot of different class actions and other lawsuits because um, I mean sometimes bad things just happen and it's not. It's not really anyone's fault, but people go looking for someone to blame. Bill, do you share those concerns? Well, uh, I, I guess I do. But, you know, I have read the detailed, uh, you know, the, the details of the conditions of the Smithfield workers. And it seems there that, you know, the problem was that Smithfield really wasn't doing very much uh, to address this issue, you know, where they, they were forcing uh, workers to continue to wear uh, dirty masks, uh, very limited time that they could wash their hands. They were, their breaks were in very, in crowded areas. So, yeah, that, I guess that's, uh, that's what uh, concerns me. One thing, one, I think, uh, thing that surprises me a little bit is, it's interesting uh, that uh, President Trump uh, is using the Defense Production Act to, keep, to order the uh, meatpacking plants open when he was so hesitant uh, to uh, use it earlier in the crisis regarding uh, some of the protective uh, gear or the ventilators. Hmm. You feel like, you know, he could have acted faster in that case to try to force people to make things like ventilators. <laughs> Instead, he's worried about our pork supply. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that's a point there. I guess part of what is a concern here, I, I can see how it would be such a drag on businesses to have to worry about, you know, trial lawyers coming and, and trying to get a payday from this. But on the other hand, if workers are so injured by this and they're looking at, you know, months of medical care and they end up on ventilators, and it just seems like our whole system is set up in a way where people almost have to depend on these kind of lawsuits sometimes to make them whole. It, it just feels like this, the, the entire system is broken, and this is maybe exemplifying this. As a non-lawyer, am I wrong in that? Well, I think the system is broken. Go ahead, Bill. I I was just going to say, you know, sometimes trial lawyers are a way in which uh, people who are victimized uh, can be made whole. There are also lots of stories about trial trial lawyers taking advantage of the system. So there's there's both sides of the coin. Sorry, Mm -hmm. Catherine. Catherine, do you? Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I do think the system is broken. Absolutely. People who have been... Um, injured through the fault or negligence of someone else should have the opportunity to recover. And our courts have played a very substantial role in increasing um, the safety of workers, the safety of consumer products over the years. But right now, the, the balance of incentives is so heavily weighted on the side of, hey, I'll just file a lawsuit and maybe I'll get a, a payday in the short term. We do have to rejigger that balance, and that's unrelated to the COVID-19 claims. It's, it's our system in general that the, the potential paydays are just too big and incentivize too many lawsuits. And unfortunately, I do think that the proportion of fees that is taken by the trial lawyers hmm. means that often the person who's injured really isn't getting the recovery that that they should have. Hmm. So the jury might think they're making someone whole, but that's not ultimately where the bulk of the money is going. Uh, we got a comment from someone, John from Webster Groves. He's wondering if the panel knows um, if lawsuits could be brought by unions rather than individuals. Um, Mark, this Rural Community Workers Alliance, isn't this some sort of, of union here that's brought this one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a union or if it's just some kind of uh, workers alliance, but it, but it would still be concerted action and it would be protected, I think. So, um, but I think, you know, unions are typically going to bring actions under their contract and there, mm. you know, there'll be clauses in the contract that relate to um, work workplace safety. And so they would... Uh, that would most likely be an arbitration, not in in the courts. They might do a grievance rather than a lawsuit. Exactly, and then it would be subject to arbitration. And um, uh, but I, I'm, I suspect. I mean, these uh, you know these meat plants. I think, like Bill said, they're they're pretty rugged working conditions, and um, and I'm sure they're trying to do it. The, the company is trying to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible, which may sometimes uh, sacrifice worker safety. Also, just as a side note, I think Smithfield, isn't it now owned by China, the um, that company? I believe that is correct. And it's interesting. We did have an email from one of our listeners on point on this. Uh, She says the people that are now suing China, she says these are the same people that invited Smithfield and other factory farm corporations to Missouri with the misleadingly named right to farm bill. Mark, do you do you see sort of an irony there? I do. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, Catherine, any thoughts on that? Well, I don't think we want to re-debate right to farm, but uh, 
I do think that on the issue of whether a union could represent these employees, it, it, that sort of triggers a number of interesting questions. If it, 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 it sounds like, um, since they do have this alliance representing them, that the workers there are, are not unionized. And if they were unionized, their claims might have been um, regulated by a collective bargaining agreement. And as Mark said, they they may not have been able to go to court, that, that they would have gone to arbitration instead. And then the other issue, which is going to be debated at length, is whether any claims they have are actually workers' comp claims as opposed to um, negligence or malfeasance claims against the company itself. So uh, there are a lot of legal issues that we're going to be debating for the foreseeable future around worker safety in the COVID-19 back-to-work environment. And that seems like the one thing all of us today can agree on, absolutely. And I do want to just make a note um, that it, Smithfield, yes, we can confirm that's a wholly owned subsidiary of WH Group, and that is a Chinese company. So that's an interesting wrinkle to the discussion. Um, we, we've been talking to our legal roundtable here. That was uh, Catherine Hannaway of Hush Blackwell, um, also joined by Mark Smith of Washington University and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, an Illinois state representative who is challenging that state's stay-at-home orders. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. Today, we're talking to our legal roundtable about a host of matters, most of them related to the coronavirus. What a surprise. It's affected everything in life. Of course, it affects the legal system as well. We do have some breaking news, and it fits our conversation today in that it's legal in nature. Uh, We've learned within the last hour that a St. Louis County police officer has been charged with manslaughter. That's in the death of a 12-year-old girl who was struck by his police car during a chase. St. Louis City Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner announced the charges against in Marcourt today. The girl, Akila Jackson, was crossing the street last October when the crash occurred. Charging documents say the officer did not have his lights or siren on at the time. Now let's go back to our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Catherine Hannaway of Hush Blackwell, and Mark Smith of Washington University. I want to talk about stay-at-home orders from various government entities. Are those constitutional? Well, a federal judge recently suggested that the one in Illinois might not be, at least when it comes to one man. Illinois Representative Darren Bailey filed a lawsuit challenging the orders issued by Governor J.B. Pritzker. Pritzker had a stay-at-home home order in place for a month. Bailey sued after the governor extended it all the way to May 30th. He alleges that Pritzker has exceeded his authority and is violating the civil rights of the state's residents. Uh, Now, Clay County Circuit Court Judge Michael McHaney ruled against Pritzker's order and granted a restraining order to state rep Darren Bailey. Catherine Hanaway, what do you make of the judge's ruling in this case? Well, so, you know, I think the ruling in this case well, first of all, I just the news you reported, you know, how heartbreakingly tragic. Um, Absolutely. It's terrible for that, that girl's family. And I know it's been a number of months ago, but what a, what a terrible, terrible uh, thing to have happen to your family. Um, with respect to this case, it, I think it really did come down to statutory interpretation. In, in Illinois, the governor can declare a state of emergency under the Emergency Management Act for 30 days. 
Um, but then um, the authority really uh, goes to the Public Health Act, at least according to this judge. You can't renew – the governor does not have the ability to perpetually renew those 30-day states of emergencies. So I think this, this court ruled on you know fairly narrow grounds. But around the country, we are going to and have already seen constitutional challenges that relate to to more fundamental rights, such as the right to assemble and the free exercise of religion. We've seen a number of cases uh, around uh, health procedures, including abortion and and whether um, subject to... um, stay-at-home orders, those procedures can be suspended. And as we sort of get back to work, I think we'll see more and more challenges to any limitations. And certainly this this Facebook post that uh, Josh Hawley made um, criticizing Facebook for pulling down I think it was Facebook and Twitter from pulling down information about rallies that were organized against stay-at-home orders in Nebraska, California, and a third state um, goes directly to to First Amendment issues. And so there are lots and lots of real fundamental constitutional rights that are likely to be litigated in the wake of these orders. Mm-hmm. As far as this Illinois order goes, I, I, um, I would Mark, agree with that. Uh, Mark, let's go to you on this. Yeah, I was just going to say another, another one is the Second Amendment, um, whether um, we can close gun shops. Are they essential? In Pennsylvania, you had a situation where uh, the governor, Tom Wolf, uh, said that uh, they were not essential. Uh, there was a challenge that went to the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and they they dismissed the challenge, but then Wolf kind of uh, changed his rule. And so you get this question, um, you know, can you close a gun store? And, and so some of it goes to, well, why are they closing it? Are they closing it because they're worried people, the, the, you know, it's too tight? in there that people will get coronavirus from each other? Or are they closing it because they know everyone's at home and they don't want more guns in the home? I think for the first, they could probably do it. Probably not for the second. Um, we haven't had a big gun case from the Supreme Court in a while. Uh, we had the, the Heller case and then the McDonald case, but they both said you can have some reasonable limitations. I could see one of these cases kind of go into the Supreme Court. Hmm. For the that Supreme Court the to line, decide but... what are people actually able to order closed? Well, yeah. And, and like Catherine was saying, this this intersection between public health and these basic fundamental uh, constitutional rights like speech and um, and the Second Amendment and and the religion, the religious ser- services. Can we really limit those to only ten people? Or um, I I I would think that might be kind of tough to defend. I think mm-hmm. you know you could maybe say, well, you could only have a, uh, a service where people have to stay six feet apart, but you're going to have to be, I think, maximally uh, accommodating to the religion. Um, or the other constitutional right. Bill Freivogel, thoughts on this? Yes. Well, I, first of all, I think the Illinois case, I mean, I don't really expect that to be upheld mm. on appeal. 
I mean, uh, I think that the 30-day limit that uh, that Catherine was referring to, which is correct, it's in the Illinois Emergency Management Agency Act. I think that applies in situations where there's, like, quarantines. I think it's very likely. I mean, already the attorney general has appealed uh, this uh, lower court uh, uh, order, and I, I think it will be thrown out. I think they'll find that the government just definitely has the governor has police powers to to deal with the, the, to extend his stay at home order, which is not a quarant is not really in a quarantine order. On, on the broader issues that uh, Catherine and Mark are talking about, you know, on the face on the Facebook issue where Josh Hawley says, well, our First Amendment uh, rights are being violated by. Uh, by Facebook taking down notices of protests against stay-at-home orders. Um, I mean, it, it's really not not the case. I mean, there's no there's no First Amendment protection against Facebook or Twitter or any other private uh, corporation uh, affecting your speech. Um, the First Amendment protects you against the government. Now, there's an allegation in these cases that. Well, the govern a couple a couple of governors told Facebook to take them down. Mm-hmm. The, the governors say, however, uh, the state governments have said we just told them what our uh, what our our stay at home orders said. We didn't tell we didn't ask them to take down uh, the postings. Facebook itself had policies that said we're going to take down postings where they are contrary to. To the law. My my own feeling is Facebook shouldn't have taken them down, but I also believe that as a matter of the First Amendment law, they have they have the right to take those down. They are not the government. Bill and, and um, I, I mean, you make a great point with that, and yet Facebook is almost at the point where if Facebook decides to block news of something, it's almost like it didn't happen. I mean, even reputable newspapers can't really get their the word out on a story they've broken if Facebook decides not to let people see it. Are they at a point where they cease being a private company and are almost like a utility? It, it's, it feels bizarre to ask this, but if they were going around, say, censoring anti-Trump protests, I just can't even imagine the outrage that that so many people would feel well right and you know i i understand the outrage that people feel at them uh censoring these anti-stay-at-home protests Mm -hmm. Uh, i'd be mad too if i were wanting to join one of those protests uh but uh still it doesn't change the fact that they are they are not congress congress shall make no law they are not Congress. Facebook is not Congress. The First Amendment doesn't protect you against them. <laughs> Catherine, you had said you thought Hawley was, had a point with this. Um, well, I how do so? think he has a point. If, in fact, the governor's alerted Facebook, that would be sort of the, the government action involved here. But I, I do think going to your point, Sarah, which I think is precisely right, is that Facebook and Twitter have become the public fora. That they are the town square, and it may take um, further regulation of those. And, and utilities is a good word. I mean, the FCC regulates the airwaves because radio and broadcast television are um, we're essential. They are utilities. They're essential. They're utilities. It's where people put out information, but they have to do it within. Um, guidelines, even though they are privately owned. 
Mm-hmm. And so it, it, we're probably evolving to some hybrid between, you know, a private company and a government agency in that it's a highly regulated private company. But the larger issue, I mean, imagine today trying to organize, well, the women's, the women's march a couple of years ago. There is no way that that could have been organized but for social media. And mm-hmm. so people's ability to get the word out for the kinds of protests that have been a great tradition in this country since its founding. I mean, the Boston Tea Party was a form of public protest. Um, you know, we're celebrating 100 years of suffrage this year. Um, suffragettes certainly were engaged in forms of public protest. So it really does go to sort of the fundamentals of how this country has affected change over time. And these orders, I mean, look, you, we're on a spectrum from everybody believes that they should have free speech on one hand. And on the other end of the spectrum, everybody um, wants to be free from being infected by an, an, an infectious and deadly disease. And as you come towards the middle um, it's going to get and con- I think continue to be very messy. And um, if the public doesn't have the right to speak up and say, I think that the government is going too far, uh, we're, in, we're in real, real trouble as a country. And the methodology, the medium for delivering that message um, should not be the uh, opportunity to restrict those First Amendment rights. Mark Smith, any thoughts on this one? Well, I just think, you know, Facebook is not the government. And while it may feel like a utility, it's not a monopoly. I mean, when you talk to the college kids, they're barely on Facebook. They're using... Yeah, that's where the stuff, old people which, are. They're they're yeah, all on that's TikTok. That's exactly right, and it's <laughs> it's interesting. Like in uh, fifteen years ago, it was just the college kids on Facebook, and now the college kids will tell you Facebook is for grandparents. Uh, it's not for young people, and so okay, but so Mark, there are other there CNN, are other venues out there. CNN is not a monopoly, but it still has regulation from the FCC. Well, that's true. Right, but, but the FCC cannot regulate Facebook. Right. They are not a broadcast medium. I mean, I think as of right now, they have like this very broad legal safe harbor under the Communications Decency Act so that they you know, cannot be regulated in that way. Congress may decide if Facebook does too many things like this, Congress may decide, hey, we're going to take away your legal safe harbor. No, but I think still, this is where weirdly conservatives and liberals may meet up. That the, the uh, social media companies that have been utterly unregulated do need to be um, asked to play by some set of rules. I think this is going to be an interesting controversy going forward. And, um, you know, I think a, a lot of reasonable people are going to have different thoughts on this one. I think it could be the next big First Amendment type front. Whether or not it is the First Amendment, I guess, is the question. In our final three or four minutes here today, um, I want to just briefly mention the case of Lamar Johnson. Now, he's the St. Louis man who was found guilty of murder back in 1995. A significant, uh, The only significant witness has recanted. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has sought a new trial 
trial in that case. The state attorney general has opposed her efforts. Last month, that case finally went to the state Supreme Court, kind of. Only the Supreme Court's chief justice was in chambers. The rest of the justices listened from home. They did this all remotely. I'm told this is the first time that's ever happened in Missouri Supreme Court history. This is really a game changer. Do we get the sense, uh, Bill Freivogel, that this worked? They were able to to do what they needed to do. Well, I listened to the argument uh, afterwards, and uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a game changer that suddenly results in Zoom uh, court hearings. It sounded really difficult. Ah. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, like people thought they were on mute when they weren't on mute, and, and justices had a little trouble sort of getting in. To, I should say judges should, were having a little trouble getting in to ask questions. So, you know, I don't think... There's nothing that's going to uh, take. I don't think there's. I don't think there's a technology that's about to take the place of in-person hearings before a bench of judges or justices able to ask questions. We're going to find. I mean, the Supreme Court's about to have these uh, oral arguments uh, telephonically, where I guess the judge justices will be asking questions based on seniority. Mm. Um, but uh, we'll see how that works out. But I. I think we'll we'll very quickly go back to, to regular order after this crisis is over. So, Bill, it was rough to listen to, but did you get a sense from the questions <laughs> which way this case could go? Well, I, I don't know how it's going to go. I didn't get a sense of how the court will come out. Um, the uh, uh, you know, there's uh, the, the the problem is that the the rule, the, the court rule that uh, Gardner wants to use to uh, seek a new trial. Uh, for Lamar Johnson, uh, has a 15-day limit to it mm-hmm. uh, for how long a, uh, you, you you can ask for a new trial. So there's there's all sorts of procedural issues. I mean, I think I think in the end, I expect that the Missouri Supreme Court will say uh, this is a case of manifest injustice, a potentially manifest injustice, and there's and find a way in which. Uh, the attempt to clear uh, Lamar Johnson can go forward. This is a guy who spent 25 uh, years in prison for a murder. He says, and I was always said he didn't commit. Uh, whether or not he is absolutely innocent, uh, definitely there isn't enough evidence today to convict him. All the evidence uh, has has disappeared. Catherine, in our last 30 seconds here, you're a former prosecutor. Do you agree that the Missouri Supreme Court will try to find a way to rule to let this man get out? Yeah, based on the facts, I think that um, they're going to find a way, whether it's uh, four square, consistent with the law as it exists right now. I, I don't think they will. And I just have to briefly disagree with Bill. I, I've had lots of uh, court hearings telephonically, and I think that judges and our clients are going to realize that there are a lot of efficiencies to be achieved, and we'll see a lot more technology in the courtroom going forward. Hmm. So this could be the, the good news that comes out of the coronavirus. <laughs> Lawyers are going to innovate. <laughs> well, <laughs> Catherine Hanaway of Hush Blackwell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you. Thank you. And finally, Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.